0: and Welcome to Magic by Design. We are about to embark on a quest to the England of legend this week because we are reviewing Disney's 18th animated feature, The Sword in the Stone. If you're new to our show, we are aiming to watch and review every Disney animated feature film. Each week, we break down a movie from the Disney canon in an attempt to discover the secrets behind the magic. But before we attempt to pull the sword from the stone, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Ken, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host slash brother,
1: Garrett. Garrett, how are you? Good. Enjoy this film? Sure. Nicole, take it away! <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, how are we doing? Could you pull the sword from the stone, Ken? What would you do if you were like, you're like 10 years old, and then or 11? I think he's 11. What age is he? Around that, 12. Give or take. Around there. If you pulled a sword from a stone and became king of a country, how would you react to this? Oh, I think I'd go mad with power. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be a horrible ruler. Don't give me power, ever. This is like, I'm going to run for president someday and they'll play this episode of Magic Die Design. Is like, he said you should never give him power. Whose word do you really take?
0: Well, in fairness, in Ireland, the presidency is a ceremonial position, meaning that you won't have any power.
1: And I can't actually run for it until I'm 35, which is another seven years away.
0: They did a referendum a few years ago to lower it to around 25, I think it was. I think it was 18. Well, no, I don't think it was as low as 18, but it might have been 25 or 20. 20- or something like that
1: it should be 18 let's be real stop it if if the country wants to elect an 18 year old it should be allowed to elect that's the thing it's like oh then an 18 year old could be president it's like no an 18 year old would have to run for president and win <laughs> and if it's the will of the people it's the will of the people it was stupid but yeah we, we turned it down so you still can't be president until you're 35 so i can't pull that sword from the stone no child can pull the sword from the stone in ireland
0: yeah we could have another ice town on our hands.
1: Yes, I am a nice clown. Kara, okay, what are your initial thoughts about this film? I think it's decent. Okay. But it doesn't get there in the end. Interesting. We'll go into death, but I don't think they tie the film together particularly well. It just ends very, very like abruptly. It's just the film is over now. He's king. Kind of like early films where they just rush to the conclusion. And I can if you go and read the book, the first of the tetralogy of <gasps> the sort of the Once and Future King tetralogy. You've read the book. I read the book years ago, but I read the book. Still so counts. It counts. It still counts. I didn't remember a lot, but I, I remembered like the fish sequence, which is in the book, but I, I didn't remember the bird squirrel sequence. So maybe that's not in the book, or I just don't remember it. It might be in the book, but I remember the fish sequence, which is in. The the book, but like the, the idea is Merlin is teaching. He's Mister Miyagiing him, so he's wax on, wax off, and then secretly he's teaching him karate. That's the idea of Mrs. That's the, the idea of the Karate Kid, or like the same idea is here. He's like turning into a fish. He's supposed to learn lessons about how the big pick on the small, and when you're king, you need to protect the small. And he's supposed to be learning these lessons throughout the course of his childhood, and so he'll be a wise and just and fair and decent king when that's thrust on him at the age of twelve. So like, obviously Merlin will be his guide throughout the rest of his life but the idea is that everything you witness in the same experience is meant to teach him something about leading and ruling and i don't think this film really gets that across particularly well it's just like and now there are fish isn't that funny oh squirrels they're in love
0: ah. so what you're saying is the karate kid is a sword and stone remake
1: uh, kind of is yeah Mer- like it, 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 it yeah I'm, I'm on board with that mr miyagi is um is merlin and then the kid is arthur or wart, if you prefer.
0: Yeah, I didn't like when
1: they called him wart. You're not supposed to. I felt bad for him. And it's supposed to be, again, another metaphor for the strong picking on the weak. But then the, the weak become the strong and protect the weak. That's the idea. That's the entire idea of the film. It's, it's about ruling justly. It's about ruling fairly. It's about about being a decent leader and, and protecting those who are lower than you. And not giving in to the, the, the deep temptation that is power. And yeah, if you notice, this is also Professor Xavier from the X-Men's favourite book. Oh, really? If you go, if you watch one of the original X Men films, you'll see he's teaching in a class, and the book he is teaching is the Once and Future King.
0: Ah, oh, yes.
1: And also, I didn't remember that, but you're you're saying it, and I believe you. It also, if you go and watch X Men: Days of Future Past, I think it's in where young Professor X is teaching in a class of James McAvoy instead of Patrick Stewart. He is still teaching them the once and future king. So this is clearly an important text to Professor Xavier about, again, the strong protecting the weak, which is an important message that comes out of X-Men, which X-Men is pretty much entirely about the disenfranchised and the cut-off. Like, mutants are, are a metaphor for others, if whether it be race or gender or sexual orientation. That's what mutants are a metaphor for, and that they're not so different from us, after all. And everyone else is like, no, they're horrible. And that's, that's what X-Men is about. That's basically what The ones of Future King is about. So it's, it all ties together but there's a twist there
0: because the mutants are actually very powerful and could become the dominant race if they wanted Magneto but and that's where Magneto comes from but they want to integrate and prosper within a society and help it rather than be the dominant force the strong
1: protects and cares for the weak Ken it doesn't ostracise them it doesn't treat them as less it doesn't try and eat them as as happens in this film with the giant eel thing trying to eat the fish is that an eel that's a big electric eel I think it looks more like a crocodile Conquer eel is what they call it I have no idea I'm not a fish person, conga.
0: I, I wanted to say conga eel, but that's a dance, isn't it?
1: See, so, yeah, we've gotten to the crux very quickly, but that's my problem with this <laughs> film. My film. Uh, I don't think this film gets to that moral. It doesn't tie those pieces together in a way that feels satisfying. Without that, it's a pretty enjoyable little silly distraction.
0: Kara, okay, I think we're going to diverge from each other for the second week in a row because. As a child, I saw this several times, mm-hmm. and it, it was somewhat of a favourite. I was a magic kid. I was obsessed with all kinds of magic, so
1: this really... You, did, you had a magic set at one stage. Yeah, I, I wanted to
0: that. be a magician and a librarian. So this, was, this appealed to me in many ways. Why a librarian? No idea. All right. So and there was your
1: priest phase, and then...
0: <laughs> you know what? I'm still so confused. I don't know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> magic
1: priest librarian. <gasps> That sounds like a
0: major franchise. Yeah. I was also drawn to the story of an ordinary boy who nobody expects to be anybody destined to be a great king. You know, as a kid, when you're a bit bullied or you're a bit weird, as as I said, magic kid, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea that you're going to be plucked from obscurity and do great things is, is very appealing. That never really happens. i still got time.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm only, like, in my early 30s.
0: Gar, we're coming to the end of an era because this was the last Disney animated movie released in the lifetime of Walt Disney. The second to- last he worked on, I guess. Yes, by the time The Jungle Book was released in 1967, he had already passed away, but he did work on that film.
1: So this is the last completed film that Walt Disney would have ever seen but he's the last new one and maybe he re-watched Snow White in his deathbed because he's like I hate the sword and the stone that can't be the last one I watched
0: well by all accounts he didn't really accept that he was dying and he just kind of died suddenly what did you say? I would have said he died in 66 I would have said he was in his mid 60s maybe late this is a thing I will live
1: google uh, how did he die?
0: Uh, it's a form of cancer I think that he didn't detect it's uh, possibly possibly linked to his smoking
1: Ah, he was 65, so... Nailed it. Right on retirement age.
0: As we know last week around the time Disney's elder brother Roy O. Disney who ran the business side of the studio attempted to persuade him to discontinue their feature animation division. We talked about this last week but I've found some further context on that.
1: His reasoning was that enough films remained to make successful re-releases so you just want to do re ones Just churn out the Fantasia and churn out the ones that didn't do well during the war and that will carry us through another like 15-20 years. He was probably right. It probably would have worked.
0: Disney refused but he also had plans to build another park which would turn out to be Disney World in Florida. So he approved that only one animated film would be released every four years. So that's why we're seeing the release dates kind of go further and further.
1: Yeah, and I guess one every four years. So that's like video game length in 2020. It's like, oh, you'll get one every four years. A new entry in your favourite video game franchise, except it's a Disney film. Can you imagine only getting a new Disney film every four years? I guess animated film, they were doing more live action back then. Exactly.
0: Back then, as we talked about, the cost was spiralling. So, you know, it made sense to slow things down and be, be more... More financially prudent, instead of just throwing a load of money at a production, hoping that it'll make its money back.
1: Do you ever think about how many of these th- these these stories are based in European or specifically British a lot uh, culture and writing? Very little American works they're adapting.
0: Yeah. But as we've seen from Walt's childhood, the books that he read and the stories that he was interested in came from Britain, so he, he had a very British-centric sensibility when it came to storytelling.
1: And That's that's all he ever made, all British and ancient European fairy tales. His fairy tales, the origin, are probably a, it's a little more nebulous. It's like, where the hell does, you know, Cinderella really come from? I guess people probably know. I know that Charles Perrault's version is the version that was adapted, but that was based on the word-of-mouth version, so you, know, you, you never know where those original stories are. Came from, but the majority of them came from Europe. So... There you go.
0: Coming back to Sword in the Stone, Disney first acquired the rights to the book in 1939, mm-hmm. and there were various attempts made to adapt the book over the next two decades before production officially began.
1: But Did you say they bought the rights to it in 1939? Yeah. That's only a year after it was published. Yeah, so that's relatively They long. are honest. <laughs> He's just like, it's mine.
0: At the release of 101 Dalmatians, as we said, Disney announced that there were two possible projects in the offing. Uh, one was Sword in the Stone, and the other was an adaption of the story Chanticleer. What the hell is Chant- Chanticleer? Chanticleer. Okay, I'm about to blow your mind in a minute. All right. Disney favoured the Sword in the Stone having seen a production of Camelot in 1960. He had his doubts about adapting Chanticleer, remarking that you don't feel like picking up a rooster and petting it. It's based on a rooster. Has this piqued your memory yet? No. Are you sure?
1: What's the rooster from?
0: Chanticleer would never be adapted by Disney, but later became the basis for the film Rockadoodle. I don't know what Rockadoodle is either. Which we had on VHS and we watched many times over the years in our childhood. Did we? Oh, man, I thought this would be like a, a really a really big moment. I
1: don't remember rockadoodle Doodle at all. I have to Google rockadoodle Doodle to try and remember what the hell rockadoodle Doodle is. Do you want to
0: get? Do you want me to give you a brief synopsis?
1: Yeah, do that while I Google it.
0: Chanticleer is a rooster, and it's said that his crowing raises the sun, and he brings the sun to the farm every morning. But then he has a fight with the the Legion of Owls and he decides to leave and then he goes and becomes a washed up pop star basically and forgets his roots and then eventually he's convinced to embrace his destiny and return to the farm uh, to make the rain go away that's caused by the owls who are evil and then he brings the sun back to the farm and the farm Flourishes again in the animated adaptation. A boy has a fever in the start. It's like a mixture of live action, and then he turns into an anthropomorphic cat.
1: Ken, I'm looking at these pictures of Rockadoodle, I've never seen this film in my life. You're lying to me. No, Gareth, we, is... we probably still have it. We'll go look for it later. Maybe the roo- maybe the main rooster. Maybe yeah. I remember him. But looking at all these other images in this film, it's not even like a oh, maybe. It's like a no. Nope. This is the first time I've ever seen these. Maybe Ed, the older
0: brother, might get it more. Yeah. The film was produced by former Disney animator Don Bluth's animation
1: studio, which was partially based in Dublin. Fun fact as well. Are there any? Are they related to the Bluths from Arrested Development? Them, them. It's Arrested Development.
0: <laughs> the Sword and the Stone was released in theaters. On Christmas Day 1963, to mixed reviews though it was a box office success. Critics thought there was too much humor and the plot was very thin. Praise came for the sense of fun, memorable characters and thoughtful philosophical themes. Wait, so critics
1: thought there was too much humor and then praise came from the sense of fun that's what I'm saying it's like some people thought there was too much humour some critics praised it. what do people want from their Disney animated films it's too funny these things aren't grim and serious and they're like they gave out about Bambi that it was too serious these people can be pleased Uh, again even though I I don't think this film particularly works by itself I'm still going to give out about these critics for liking it Uh, but the people who thought the plot was thin but also people who liked it for the philosophical themes are more or less right but the people who were like there's too much fun in the film what's wrong with you. This is a film for children. You just have adults watching
0: it with their adult brain and they're saying, well, no, this isn't high art, I don't want it. But as we always said over the years, in all the podcasts we've ever done, Garrett, you have to watch it in the context for which it's intended.
1: I'm I'm always a firm believer on meeting a piece of culture, whether it be a film or a TV show or a book or a game, where that is. Not where you want it to be or where you think it should be or where you expect it to be. Meet it where it is. What is this film? What is the this film trying to do? And does it do that well? And I don't think that's like, uh, because some people will go, it's a kid's film, why bother? It's like, no, there's plenty of absolutely phenomenal children's entertainment. You do not need to lower your standards, but you do need to meet something where it is. You can't watch this film and be like, why wasn't it brooding and angsty? Because it wasn't trying to be. Stop trying to turn the thing you're watching into something else. Stop trying to make it something that you want it to be. Stop rewriting it in your head. Just say, What is this? What is it trying to do? Does it do it well? That's what you should be doing when you do watch anything. You shouldn't be like because you're playing through Paper Mario at the moment, and there's there's a lot of controversy, or there was before it was released, uh, based on uh, there's an old Paper Mario game that's very different. It's more of an RPG, where it's like turn-based battles, stuff like that, and that's a game people love a lot. And Paper Mario, the Origami King, is not that game. So they think that this game is bad because it's not the same as the old game. Instead of meeting this game where it is, saying what is this game trying to to do and is it enjoyable it is which is the spoiler it's actually a very good game it's like, oh, I agree and it's the same and there's a, a, a documentary at the moment on Netflix about video games called high score it's a six episode documentary that goes through the history of video games and people were like it doesn't cover this or that or this or that or xyz and it doesn't look into this and it's like it didn't try to
0: how can it cover something that's been around for 50 or 60 years
1: and it's like it does And it, it does like make active attempts to represent people who aren't normally represented in these kind of conversations but they're like it should have went further it's like stop it what is this doing does it do it well it cannot be all things to all people like no piece of culture can be all things to all people it's like you gotta meet something where it is It's it's just when you hear adult critics going oh not for me it's like
0: yeah it's not for you, but yeah. tell me if it's good in the context that it should be. We're and as you said, you know, we're we're all adults, but we were kids once, so we can at least cast our minds back to see if it would have
1: appealed to us then. You know, that's, that's my other gold golden rule of um, critiquing anything. Ken, the first one is meet something on the terms that it's trying to meet you at, not the terms you prefer it to be. The other is know the difference between something not being for you and something being bad, because there's plenty of things that people enjoy that aren't for me. And that's fine. Not everything's made for me. Not everything should be made for me. Like, the idea... That's the internet these days. Everything should be made to my liking, and if it's not exactly that, it's bad. Yeah, the idea that this that thing, everything should be catered to a specific tiny group of people, it, it's good that there, th- that there are plenty of things that aren't made for me. More things not being made for me is more things being made for other people, and that's great, because there's plenty of things that are made for me, and that's fine. Like, it's not like there is a shortage of culture in the world. There is far too much of it That you could ever consume and plenty of it that you will love and adore. So let's not try and turn everything into the thing you want it to be. So yeah, understand the difference between something being bad and something not being for you and meet something on its own terms. The two golden rules of critique and in the Garrett school of criticism. Enough said, Garrett yeah there because you go because we
0: have a whole podcast to do but also we good do. point <laughs> yeah
1: Ken's just looking at the clock and he's like oh I gotta edit this before I go because spoilers to, to roll back the curtain Ken's going on a nice little uh, staycation for a, a responsible
0: staycation in my own country
1: yes yeah, a responsible staycation and he's going to have a nice little few days away to, to decompress on a week off so we're recording this uh, only a few days after we recorded 101 Dalmatians so yeah. Ken wants to get this edited and done tonight before he goes away tomorrow
0: yeah two podcasts in three days is pretty impressive I have to say for us
1: I uh, the way Ken threw win the um, responsible staycation in case he gets Phil hogan <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a very specific take there, Gar. I don't it's, know. it's
1: a fun journey. If you're not from Ireland, Google Phil Hogan. He's in the news a lot this week. Yeah,
0: it's like, a, a, it's like someone with a shovel digging a grave and then keeps digging down trying to
1: get out of it. It increasingly reaches the stage of what laws didn't he break this week? Check it out. It's still good even if you're not from Ireland.
0: Moving on here to the animation, Gar. Just one note on an in- innovation that came out of this movie. A new animation technique called touch-up was created drawing production. The animation process had previously involved the use of cleanups, where assistant animators transferred the directing animators' sketches by hand onto a new sheet of paper, which were later copied onto an animation cell. Clean-ups were replaced by touch-ups, where the assistants drew directly onto the animators' sketches before drawing was copied onto a cell. So in- instead of just redoing the work, they just tidy up the existing drawing. It seems like, like no a brain-
1: That's like an innovation in this film, where if we make a mistake, we don't throw it out, we try and fix it first. It's like, oh, what an innovation. Why weren't you doing this all the time?
0: And when you see things like this, you can really tell where they lost all this money.
1: Yeah, and I guess, like, yeah, you see, this would be a thing where it's like, oh, is this corner cutting? No, it's just, like, common sense. Can this be redeemed? It's not like that episode of Kitchen Nightmare. Actually, no, it is like that episode of Kitchen Nightmare, you were watching last night, where the dude dropped a wing on the floor and then threw it back into the fryer. This is basically the equivalent of dropping a wing on the floor and throwing it back in the fryer.
0: (laughs) Because his theory was that if you put it in the fryer, it sterilizes it and removes all the dirt from the floor.
1: Yeah, it kills all the germs. You're fine. Don't worry about it. This is the same thing. It removes all the
0: dirt from the drawing.
1: Yeah, what is it 5 to 63 is the, the the range in which the danger zone they call it five, yeah. so it's, once it's cooked above 63 degrees again after it falls on the floor everything is fine oh god kitchen nightmares is a great show
0: it's really a microcosm of what's wrong with america and some of these episodes are like 13 years ago 14 years ago yeah they all coming down the track years in advance there's a lot of use of still frames especially in the early goings when they're setting the steam uh again this is you know a, a cost saving and time saving measure uh to me the animation feels like a further step down even from 101 dalmatians some of the backgrounds feel unfinished and some shots have no detail at all you pointed out the thundergats go background.
1: Yeah. <laughs> i've not put this in your head you can't unsee it um i didn't like there uh, i agree that there's some of the shots where it's just like it's a character model in front of a blank color background which is just like all right you didn't want to put any detail on that shot that's all right but uh, in fact some of those because at least the sky the, the background isn't just a single color There's usually at least uh, in that particular one there was like different gradients of orange to reflect a, sun, uh, a setting sun so there, there was some detail there it wasn't not, totally lazy but yeah not a ton but um, I think I think it's on par with the 101 Talmatians. It's, it's. I, I wasn't blown away by it but there was at uh, no point it was like ugh but for me like Archimedes the owl and other characters I love Archimedes I, I oh thought no, Archimedes I, I, was I, super expressive and fun
0: I really love him but he did feel a bit crude at times like uh, he was a bit of a kind of a, a moving like a flip book like it's, it seemed kind of a rough around the edges mm-hmm. like I, as I said I don't think it's much worse than 100 101 animations, but it does feel cheap. No, I didn't bump on it. Uh,
1: it. Maybe it's I've already adjusted to the lower standards. I've already lowered my bar or no, I, I like I, I, as I said, I wasn't like, oh, wow, this is one of the prettier films I've ever seen. Or, that sequence of animation was just dazzling. For the most part, I'm just like, this is a pleasant animated film.
0: Yeah, there, there were times where they seem to be zooming on a 2D painting in some establishing shots rather than using the multi camera. So they took a few shortcuts there. But then, as you said, some shots and backgrounds. Are beautiful. So it's a real Frankenstein of a movie for me. Like the, the quality does vary kind of wildly.
1: And there's some like really I think like the, the sequence where Merlin is battling what's the name of the witch? M- Mem, Mom? Madam Mim. Mim, there we go. Mim. Where Merlin is battling Mim. I thought that's I think that sequence is really interestingly animated and it's it's really well written as well, actually.
0: It's very frantic and well paced, and you really get the sense of magic where like it's like a it's a magic fight from one. Yes, it's a, a magic thing. fight.
1: I, I do think anytime like magic is used in great detail in this film, it uh that's when the animation shines. Like the sequence yeah. where the all the the uh, pots and pans and and crockery and all that fun stuff is cleaning itself all very fancy. And when they
0: beat up uh, Lord Hector and uh, Sir Kay. Mm -hmm. It's pretty funny. The sentient tea set was also very fun.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, whenever magic is introduced that's when the animation shines as well because that's like when you'd expect the animators to be able to flex their muscles, you know, they'd be able to say like, all right, we can cut loose, we don't have to be, we're not tethered to the mortal realm anymore. We can have our fun.
0: As you said, I I did really enjoy Archimedes as a character though, I thought. He was a great sidekick and actually the person who plays Merlin was initially cast to play Archimedes and then they went through several voices.
1: That's a trend in this film.
0: I think about, I, I have a note here, they interviewed about, or sorry, they auditioned, I said, it should, well, an audition is an interview, so technically yes, I'm not wrong. just the
1: performing interview.
0: Uh, about 70 actors for Merlin before they decided oh this guy's pretty good and then they got someone else to do Archimedes they just gave him a promotion. promotion it's like we give up they you got the gig also. there was like
1: 17 people played, played Arthur so yeah
0: but I, I thought he, a lot of the comedy came from Archimedes and
1: was, I, like, I like Archimedes a lot because he's very much a type he's like the flustered uh, stuffy kind of he's an owl set in his ways owl way a stuffy owl there you go uh, you know uh, very much a character type but an enjoyable character type where he's all flustered whenever anything happens and he's like oh leave me alone oh I would Oh, I'm put out by all of this yes, and he hates Arthur but he secretly likes and helps Arthur and it's all that fun stuff I enjoy her comedies Arthur's 17 voices that was very strange
0: yeah I have a note here Kerr I think it's somewhere oh uh, yes Ricky Sorensen who had voiced young Arthur entered puberty during production and Reitherman who was the director Wolfgang Reitherman who's famous in a few of these films cast his sons Richard and Robert to replace him so there's notable changes in the voice of Arthur between scenes it's, it's com- very
1: jarring completely inconsistent as well it's very strange in that legitimately every line that comes out of his mouth could potentially sound different it's like what? what is this character and because sequences are done
0: out of order it just means that the voices goes back and forth throughout the film
1: yeah and it even feels within the scenes sometimes there's like it's one voice then it's the other voice why not just read but like when they decided to recast him uh, like that's this is where the cheapness kicks in instead of being like all right we'll we'll record all the lines it's like now nah, we have these ones done so let's just frankenstein it together and who cares how consistent it sounds because like he has a different voice some as i said sometimes within a scene he'll have a different voice and i'm like who is this person speaking
0: and then sometimes Sometimes he sounds like a boy, and other times he sounds like a young adult. And yeah, it, it, I think it took me out of the film at times. It's very
1: strange. It's very strange. To, like, if, if you didn't know that for some reason they decided to recast him and then they didn't re record all the audio, if you didn't know all of that, you'd, um, you'd be very confused watching this film by the fact that his voice changes multiple times. Okay,
0: as you said before, this is based on the novel of the same name, which yes. was first published in 1938. So, the first of four books, literally, as soon as they hit the shelves, they, they bought it up as a, yes. a movie.
1: Of course, Ar- Arthurian legend goes back way further. Than that, like this is based on Arthurian legend, which goes back to I don't know when Arthurian legend started, but this I think uh, it codified a lot of the Arthurian legend, and that this is where the myth that we know today, like Knights of the Round World and all that fun stuff. I think a lot of it was the, the version of it we think of is the version in T.H. White's book, uh but yeah, obviously it goes back way further than that. Yeah, so much like Charles Perrault or yeah, it's, the a, it's, 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 it's yeah, they 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 cataloged the story and told it in their own way. In the same way, people will watch this version of the Sword in the Stone, and that. Will persist in some way or another. For a lot of people this is the definitive
0: version and there has been many attempts to make Arthur movies over the years that have been bad. This is just are bad. There's one especially with Charlie Hunnam which is just unwatchable.
1: The BBC TV show did pretty well, didn't it? The Merlin one? The Merlin show, yeah. yeah. It, it, it had a few seasons. I think it had like four or five seasons so it ran for a while. I think that that's always the better approach. Like trying to do a big budget blockbuster Arthur film at this stage unless you do it about Arthur the, the cartoon not the the, the, the uh, la, legend of Merlin uh, that would be a much better idea do a, a big budget Arthur cartoon um, but yeah uh, probably not a good idea to do it like I think people like that's that's one of the stories that has just been so thoroughly saturated in the world that it's it's very hard to find an interesting take on it yeah up there with Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and all those that doesn't stop them with Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan either yeah. though and every like the thing is these literally are, every few years we see one of these films these are public domain ideas like uh, the, the Arthurian legend I'm not sure what the, the copyright thing is between what you can use what T.H. Uh, White actually came up with. There's probably it was weird. Yeah, there's still probably some copyright on that. So, yeah, the, the, there's probably certain beats and parts of it you can't use because they came from T.H. White's text as opposed to like the legend. But, yeah, it's first. It's, it's as I said, it's as saturated as, as can be. Everyone knows like Knights of the Round Table, Lancelot, Guinevere, Arthur, all that fun stuff. It's so like in culture.
0: One last fun fact about
1: the book, scare A collection of four stories in a series of books is called a tetralogy. Yes, a tetralogy the Once and Future King Tetralogy I never knew that and there's actually a fifth one that they I think published after his death oh really yeah
0: uh, it feels like one I'd like to check out I think I'd be I, I
1: remember enjoying it I, as I said I, I would have read it a year. I could probably check my Goodreads or whatever whenever I read it because uh, it's technically still in progress because the Once and Future King was one giant it's a collection of the books I still technically I haven't finished The Once and Future King I've only finished The Sword and the Stone I was somewhere in the second book I believe when I dropped it but yeah I remember enjoying it quite a bit I think it's a it's a good story and like the, the morals that don't make it into the film are actually really interesting and fundamental to that story
0: Bill Peet who wrote the story for 101 Dalmatians wrote a script for The Sword and Stone
1: so I'm mad at him for leaving out the important parts <laughs> leaving out the juice the yeah. good stuff
0: Peet decided to write a screenplay before producing storyboards though he found the narrative complicated with the Arthurian legend woven into a mixture of other legends and myths and finding a direct storyline required sifting and sorting so he it took him a long time to, to find the story that they wanted that would work in
1: animation so he accidentally sorted the crocs out of the film he, he left in like the whimsy and magical wonder but he I, I i he he missed the moral it's it's funny that he missed the moral
0: after walt disney received the first screenplay draft he told pete that it should have more substance find there. the moral first, it's in there yeah uh, and on his second draft pete the lengthened it by enlarging the more dramatic elements of the story and Disney approved so he (laughs) he had two bites of this cherry
1: yeah Disney is still like hey what's the moral of this story and it was uh, I don't know children fluke that in the kingdom by Uh, the way the the entire premise of this film is that England falls apart without a monarchy it's like is a monarch an England without a monarchy really that bad I had this in my notes apparently in ye olde England or legendary England if there's no king there are no
0: laws surely there was laws before he died and they don't just go away because there's no king I don't know Case for a democracy here, Kerr.
1: Is it? What about a democracy still combined with a monarchy? Makes sense of that.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you about the book as well, Kerr. Merlin can see the future in this telling. Is that in the
1: book as well? He can't just see the future. He visits it. Oh, really? He visits it? it in the film. Does he? When he goes oh, to he Bermuda. He goes to future Bermuda. He doesn't go to present Bermuda. He doesn't have a time machine, though. Does he just magic himself there? Yeah. He's, oh, he, he's a, out of time. I I really like that at the, at the start of the film. It's like, he doesn't know who's coming or when they're coming, but he's like, roughly soon, he'll be here.
0: <laughs> and he knows exactly where they're going to land because he, he sets up the tea table underneath the place where he falls through the roof.
1: So there's probably... But if we're to, to look into the like this is a time travel film if we're looking to like the timelines of this there's probably a, a version of this world where uh, Arthur is not guided he is not led to become the king he's meant to be and instead becomes a horrible evil uh, dictator once he pulls that sword out of the stone and England descends into further chaos and misery thus Merlin has to go back in time and guide Arthur into some kind of decent humanity a sense of humanity so that he can rule England fairly and justly uh, so yeah th- th- make the other film make the film where Merlin gets cut off or he doesn't get there on time and some horrible influence overtakes arthur and england descends into chaos
0: and then he has to go back and fix it so it's like this is the world that could be it's like a christmas carol this is what could be yeah so we have to go back and fix it in this one though merlin wants to help arthur to become king because having a knowledge of
1: the future he's tired of living in the middle ages and he endeavors to give progress a push and yeah, there, there's some good stories, some good gags about the time travel. It's like, oh, what's the weather? I'll check the London Times. That The first edition is out in 1,200 years. years. <laughs> it's like, very good. Some really good gags.
0: As we said earlier, Merlin is the original Mr. Miyagi, using unorthodox means to teach lessons. Yeah, the squirrel segment, as you said, it's not in the book, but I, I find that very enjoyable.
1: Is it? Uh, it's not in the book. Is that confirmed? That's what you said, isn't it? I said I don't remember it. It might, it might be in there, and I've forgotten. Yeah, the, the squirrel. I feel bad for the squirrel that falls in love with him. They don't pay that off at all. That squirrel's heart is just broken she he turns him back into a boy and she's like, what? Because like, squirrels apparently fall in love immediately. I'm not sure if that's true. And they made for life. And They made for life. I didn't life. know that
0: was true. I thought I knew that was true for penguins, but...
1: And uh, swans, famously. Once they fall in love, they fall in love forever because there was that clip of the swan who had fallen in love with a swan boat and followed the swan boat around for its entire life, which is tragic and depressing, but I guess it'll never die unless yeah. it falls apart. But uh, uh, yeah, the poor squirrel who has her heart broken and she's crying and bawling and then they cut away and that's it. Her heart's just broken. Her love is a human now. She will live a life of horror and misery and never find love again.
0: Although I will say, Gart the reaction of the other lady squirrel chasing after Merlin when he turns back into a human is amazing. <laughs> She's like, <Eee! laughs> She lets out a full scream. It's very good. Also, as you said, Gart, they didn't really drive home the morals and the no. themes that much, but they did try. There's a few in here, like love is the most powerful force in the world yeah. uh, in the sequence with the squirrels. Uh, there's some lessons about leadership just because you don't understand canceling doesn't mean that it's wrong. Knowledge and wisdom is the real power. So, like, th- they did try to go for the themes, but as you said, I don't know if they fully
1: went there. They didn't tie. You see, they didn't. They didn't put the tie, tie the knot on it. Where it's like did you, d- you didn't see how those themes affected him, how he how he ruled, because the film just ended. Like the film is just like it's over now. You're king.
0: Yeah, Arthur does not want to be king and tries to run away, but Merlin comes back to inform him that this was the plan all along and he'll be a great king. There's meta jokes about movies that he'll be...
1: I do enjoy the meta jokes about movies. He's
0: like, maybe he'll be in a motion picture and he all but looks at the screen. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. It's like television without the commercials. Do you think that was a timing thing or do you think it was just that they thought kids wouldn't get it? Which... The, just not going all the way on the themes and the morals.
1: I I, I would imagine they just ran out of time because this film ends so abruptly that I would think it's just like get it done, get it done, get it done, out the door. You know, I'd imagine there was part of the script where it's just like it probably all it needs is probably like a montage where he grows up to be a fair and just leader and you show him applying some of the lessons that he learns as king. But the yeah. film ends before he can.
0: They could have gone there with a sequel, but I don't think they ever really intended to to adapt all these books.
1: Yeah, probably not.
0: So yeah, it just does seem to, to, to end suddenly. Much in the the vein of
1: the earlier Disney films, where they're like, "It's oh, very Snow White. We're running out of time. Just do it." It's like Rock Falls on the Queen. Queen Dead. Film over there you go Yen uh, Sid and Merlin Ken yes. very similar designs oh like, yeah true like, uh, do, you th- like, do you think because they had the right obviously when they did the Yen Sid thing when was that that, that that they would have had the rights to yeah, that was in the 40s wasn't it
0: In the, yeah well, in the 40s Fantasia was in
1: the 40s yeah. so they would have had the rights to Merlin so they're just like hey uh, do you think they based their design of Merlin off of Yen Sid or the other way around that they based Yen Sid's design on the description of Merlin in the book
0: well based on the fact that they tried to adapt this multiple times says to me that they were holding it back or this movie mm. and maybe once they produced Fantasia, the design of Yensid informed the design of Merlin because yeah.
1: like more than very good character again they, they really nail character designs in this era don't they yeah like above all else like the designs of Peter Pan which come, some of these comes from the original text but the designs of Peter Pan the designs of Cinderella the designs of Snow White the designs of uh, uh, Lady and the Tramp the designs of the Dalmatians all of that they really nail it
0: yeah and as much as I, I I'm not Maleficent
1: f- I cannot mention Maleficent of Malificent. course of course
0: as much as I'm not a fan of this style that emerged in the 60s the, the characters are still very appealing and charming mm-hmm. One last thing there, Gary, I wanted to touch on it. We we spoke about it earlier was the wizard duel where they are outsmarting each other by transforming into various animals. I thought that was one of the best sequences in the movie as we talked about.
1: He cheats. He uses chemical warfare. He violates the Geneva Convention (laughs) in order to win this war.
0: In in an era of COVID that made me feel quite anxious. (laughs) He gives her a virus. She cheats by turning into a dragon and he's like, I'm going to turn into a virus that you don't know about. I'm going to make you sick. It's like, first of all, genius. Yes. Very good. very good way to win. Very kind of on the nose for our times, and maybe feel a bit squeamish. Yes,
1: it's 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 too much. 1960s Disney. He should have the foresight to see we're watching this in a pandemic. But yeah, and like Merlin is a time traveler. He can see. He 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 knows the, the Geneva Convention exists. So so is he a bad guy then?
0: Mm. Maybe all wizards are a bit bad one last note here on on that Madame Mim has a top notch maniacal laugh she
1: does t- it's very good yeah, it's a, when she turns into the dragon and starts winning she gives out this like giant maniacal laugh it's like yes you are evil I like the way she's the villain of the film really as well Yeah. She, and she's only introduced for like a, a like seven minute sequence she shows up really late in the game as well she's introduced as this villain and then she's defeated and then the film moves on and it ends which it's a very weirdly struggle do you think the film
0: would have benefited from introducing her early and having this push and pull between Merlin and
1: Mim almost like the dark side against the light. So that like she knows also that he is the once and future king and then she so, tries to corrupt, yeah. she's the corrupting force and Merlin is the good force. So that are trying they're, to bring him to one side or the
0: other to enact the vision they see for the country.
1: It, there's probably a, there's probably a decent story to tell there. But I, I kind of like that, like you could take her out of this film, and I think the film still works. I like, I just like the idea of it's kind of a laid back film. Where we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna teach you how to be king, and you will take in these lessons whether you want to or not.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of a, an easy watch in that sense. It's not complex in in its themes, but not in its structure. Mm. There's quite a lot to talk about here in the music era. The songs were written and composed by the famous Sherman Brothers. This marked the first contribution of the Sherman Brothers to the music in an animated Disney film. You can tell, you can definitely tell. It, it has
1: that. I'm like uh, legitimately, I was like. The song sound. Better. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there you go. Like markedly better.
0: Uh, they would later her write the music for other Disney films such as Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, and The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, all of which are coming up. Because
1: like when you when you think about the music in the film, these films prior to this, it's very I don't know. It's very like classical songs. It's not very like show tunes and uh, stage musically. And yeah. you, there there is some show tunes and stage musical-y-ness sprinkled into this film, particularly uh, with Merlin's songs that that have those like like the 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 Merlin song in this film is basically Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Like, it's it's pretty much the exact same structure of song. It's like, I'm going to say some made-up words and things are going to get done as I do it. Uh, that's uh, I, I wouldn't have
0: remembered this film for the songs, as in, like, you know, obviously there's Disney songs I listen to on a regular basis on my Spotify playlist. Uh, the songs here, as you said, are delightful and have that distinct Sherman Bros style. They are masters of... Catchy, poetic lyrics that burrow into your mind like all good earworms. But they also have those bouncy, whimsical melodies to go along with it, and just, it just as you said, that kind of show tune musical theater vibe, which I'm very much into.
1: Yeah, I, I like that kind of music. I like that kind of like a song musical feel, and it's it's injected into these films. You can hear it, and it has a better sense of rhythm, a better sense of like timing, a better a better it's a better sense of musicality because they go for like some of the earlier films. They do have these like big classical numbers which some of them are better than others but I don't think they really work for animated films I think that like combination of like uh, musical theatre and uh, animated children's films goes together so perfectly well that as they increasingly leaned into it I'm on board
0: yeah that's a really great point I was going to mention that as well that you know this style sounds more like it suits animation they go Mm -hmm. hand in hand and as they lent more into it they had success and then when they pulled away from it they didn't have success and as we know as we go into the 90s in in a couple of episodes actually quite a few a lot of their success we're still uh, in the 60s yeah yeah true A, a lot of their success is based on the fact that you know that they lean into that and it just works like essentially all the best disney films are animated musicals Hmm. George Bruns who's a go-to Disney guy composed the film Score this is the third film he had scored for Disney following Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians the film received an Academy Award nomination for Best Score Adaptation or Treatment in 1963 I think it's warranted yeah I like the music of this one. in terms of my final thoughts on this film Garrett I do have a soft spot for this one because it's one of the more
1: nostalgia the toxicity of nostalgia
0: it it was one of my favourites as a kid the characters are endearing and memorable I have to say as, as we get deeper into this new sketchy style I, I become less and less enamoured by it. There were some very catchy tunes as we just said ones that will definitely be entering my Disney rotation for sure. The story structure it's not as f- sophisticated as other Disney films we have reviewed uh, recently but I do think The Sword and Stone attempts to reach deeper in terms of themes and morals than most Disney films. As we said whether they got there or
1: not I, I really did appreciate the attempt. There is depth in the source material that they do they do fiddle at the edges of. They, they they chip away at they get like, like not even. i don't even think they get surface deep but they try to get surface deep on at the very least but uh yeah i i think this is a a solid it's better not i like it more than 101 dalmatians i'll say that much uh, but uh, if and if if it did tie those things together if it did have like that satisfying conclusion that like like when daniel finally realizes that wax on wax off is actually karate that's deeply satisfying that works very well and arthur does not have the moment or he realizes being turned into a fish and a squirrel and a fly and a bird it teaches him how to lead. And without that film, this uh, without that moment, this film feels incomplete. But uh, it tries. So what you're saying is it's missing its bow. And if it had that, it could have been elevated to a Disney classic.
0: Yes. Overall, for me, it's 80 minutes of rollicking fun, full of imaginations and lessons that are surprisingly prescient for our times. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it still holds a fond space in my heart. If you're playing Magic by Design Bingo, get ready to mark your card. A live action adaptation is in the works. It was it was first announced in 2015 to be released on Disney Plus, which you know that was but a twinkle in Walt Disney's eye at that point. Yes. Uh, we have yet to see anything from it to date.
1: They'll make all like they're apparently making Lilo and Stitch. And I'm like, how are you going to do that? No, I've already said how they should do that. Stitch should be a dog. But other than that, they're going to turn all of these films into live action, not even adaptations, it's basically live action remakes, uh, shot for shot. But, yeah. we've already said we, we, the world doesn't want more Arthur stuff so
0: yeah. good luck let's see how they pull that one out the back I think they should lean into the fantasy and make it more kid friendly keep it with the themes of this film then try to make it serious and gritty
1: uh, I think they will do that but they're, they're, they're not going to adapt they haven't adapted any of these it's been shot for shot remakes
0: the film inspired King Arthur's carousel in Disneyland one of the original attractions at the park but no, and I don't remember that ride it's, it's the carousel it's literally just the horses oh okay and you weren't in Disneyland
1: no, that's true. I've been to Disney World and Euro Disney and Tokyo Disney. A
0: replica of the sword stuck in the stone features in most Disney parks to this day. So I do we remember have that. we and have attempted to pull the sword from the stone yeah. unsuccessfully. So there you go. I
1: failed. Kingdom Hearts! Uh, look at the script, Gar. Uh Kingdom Hearts gear. <laughs> uh, yes, uh Merlin is in Kingdom Hearts. He visited him in Kingdom Hearts 1. He used the fire spell to go to his area. Which is the when when the kingdom, he's in his house at the start of the film, I'm like, that's the, that's the Kingdom Hearts! He's that's where he is in Kingdom Hearts. So there you go, there's your sword in the stone connection to Kingdom Hearts. Merlin is a, an NPC who teaches you magic. There we go. Is there any better way to end the episode, Gar? Than Kingdom Hearts. It is the true pinnacle of all of Disney.
0: Okay, squires and maidens. That's nearly it for the show this week. Our resident musical wizard, Nicole, is coming up in just a few moments with a song from the movie. You can find brand new episodes of Magic by Design every Monday where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Check out our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast providers. You will also find all our previous episodes there if you're catching up or feel like revisiting a favourite Magic by Design is on all your favorite social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Magic by Design Pod, on Twitter at Magic Design Pod, and on the Insta at Magic by Design Pod. If you're a fan of the show, please do consider giving us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice, share the podcast on your socials, or even recommend the show to a fellow Disney fanatic. You don't have to be Merlin to transform our humble little podcast into a legendary ruler of the podcast kingdom. All it takes is a five-star review or two
1: alakazam job done
0: we will be back next week at the same time same place with disney's 19th animated feature the jungle book but until then stay safe and remember it's up to you how far you'll go if you don't try you'll never know now then nicole is here to sing us out with higitus Figatus from the sword in the stone as well as conjuring up some fun facts about the music of the film thanks for joining us and over to you nicole
2: hello there disney buffs it's me, Nicole, your musical correspondent, coming to you live from my bedroom. This week, we're taking it back to The Sword in the Stone. Again, George Bruns wrote the film score for this movie, while the songwriting duo, the Sherman Brothers, wrote the songs. This was the first gig for Robert B. Sherman and Richard M. Sherman, who were responsible for more motion picture musical song scores than any other writing team in film history. You'll hear their names again soon. I'll admit... Sword in the Stone is not known for its super lyrical songs, as most of the actors sing in a speech British accent. But I could not let this week pass without trying out my favourite song from the movie. Hecatus Figatus. Buckle up, everyone. This is a bit of a ride. Hecatus Ficatus Sambacassing. I want your attention, everything. Packing to leave, come on, let's go. No, no, not you. Books are always first, you know. pockety pockety, wockety, whack. Abracadabra, dabra, knack. Shricket size, very small. We've got to save enough room for all. Hicketis, picketis, nicketis, mum. press the digitonium. Cicero, you belong in the seas. Alphabetical order, please. Alla cafez, malaccazes, malacca mesmericities. Diminished dictionary, the words in your vocabulary. dee That's the way we have to back. Higget, hick it, higher to the ticketone.